Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. Welcome to those here in person, to those online. It's a joy to be able to gather together and to sing and to pray and to hear the word proclaimed. What a joy and a privilege this is. As you open up your Bibles to Revelation, just a few things to remind us. We have a lot going on in the life of our church right now, which is great. And I just wanted to highlight a few of those things as you're turning to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, next Sunday, November 7th, at, in, in the evening from 5 to 6, 6.30, we are having our next church-wide prayer night. And so I encourage you to be a part of that, to gather here in this room, uh, to spend time praying together uh, for each other, for our church, and for our witness in the world around us. And so we're going to devote some of that time uh, to pray through those things together in, in groups, and it's, it's been such an encouraging time each time we've been able to do it. Then on Saturday, November 13th, weather permitting, we're going to have a fall cleanup just to clean up the, the, the area all around our facilities and, and just make that look pleasing and pleasant and whatnot. And so volunteers from 8 a.m. till noon, you can come that whole time or any part of that time. Any help would be greatly appreciated. That's Saturday, November 13th. If it's if the weather does not cooperate, our rain date will be the following Saturday, November 20th. So just kind of keep that in mind as you look ahead and, and can help us in those ways. And then lastly, just to highlight, uh, in a couple of weeks on Sunday, November 14th, we have two things related to global outreach. One, we have Dave Parsons of Unto, which is a humanitarian ministry that goes into hard places with tangible needs, but also equipped with people to share the gospel. And so Dave Parsons will be here and he'll be preaching. And then after the service, he'll, we'll have a luncheon and you'll hear more specifically from him about the work of Unto uh, throughout the world and ways that we can continue to support and encourage them and be a part of it. And then also on November 14th is when we need our Operation Christmas Child boxes in. So that Sunday, a global outreach focus. Hopefully that will trigger you to remember to bring in your box if you've been building that uh, for Operation Christmas Child. Uh, you can give online if you go through trinitynh.org to the Give page and select the Operation Christmas Child Fund. You can give toward that, and any giving toward that, we will then build those boxes uh, and, and get those out. So that's a lot going on, but hopefully uh, you caught some of that and, uh, and we'll be a part of it in the, in the weeks ahead. All right. That said, let's get back into Revelation, and we're going to start uh, a look at seven letters that King Jesus is giving to John to give to these churches. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7 uh, to start our time in this sort of mini-series within our series on Revelation. Seven letters to these seven churches. So let's, uh, let's begin with verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to hear and receive and believe and trust this, your word, through King Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to your church, that we would indeed be encouraged to trust you and to live for you with joy in our hearts and our lives. God, would you do that work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There can be only one main thing. There can be only one, like Highlanders. Sorry, that's very specific uh, to my age. Anyway, if I were to quiz you and ask you, what is the main thing of the church, what would you say? Would Would it be worship? Would it be discipleship, evangelism, missions? What would the main thing of the church be? Our passage this morning lists a number of very good and very necessary things in the life of this specific church. But it lacked the main thing. It was missing. Very sobering and striking words that we see and hear and read from King Jesus to John to this church. When I think about it, it helps me realize that the goal of the church is to keep the main thing the main thing in what it's doing. To keep the main thing the main thing in what it is doing. And so as we try to tackle that in keeping the main thing the main thing, as we consider what Jesus is saying to this church and to us today, is that there is a realizing the main thing and a returning to the main thing that should mark the heart and soul in life of the church, that we go about realizing the main thing and returning to the main thing again and again and again. Because there can only be one main thing. So let's work through that together. First of all, we want to go about realizing the main thing, and there's a a pattern that emerges as we work through these letters and that we see here in this first one. And it will help us to see that, that Jesus, King Jesus, isn't just simply speaking to these historical churches, though he is. He's also speaking to the whole church always, throughout time. And so what we read here, it also means something to us now. And so let's, take a, let's get a little bit of a handle as we work through these letters. First of all, in Revelation 2 and 3, King Jesus is dictating to John these seven letters for the nearby churches in Asia Minor, which is approximately modern-day Turkey. These churches were, in fact, very real, very historical churches made up of actual human beings who were trusting Jesus and living for him in a hard world. So they were real people that these letters were going to. 
They're facing real historical situations and concerns. That's important that this, this very fascinating letter in the Bible actually still was tethered to this realness. Real people were to receive this. But just like we would read in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, there is nothing new under the sun. So all the kinds of struggles and joys and hardships that we're going to read over these two chapters that mark these seven churches, they're the kinds of joys and struggles and hardships the church has experienced year after year, decade after decade, millennia after millennia. And so because of that, it it makes it very relevant for you and I today, right now. Now, I don't know if, you know, there's any Nicolaitans in the room. <laughs> so maybe there's specific ways in which it feels far from us, but, but under it, the, the principles and the encouragement and the warnings and the hope, all of that relates to us right now. The church has been, is, and will always be like these seven letters, making them relate to both John's day and to ours. And its relevancy, this letter's relevancy, is tied to the one who's dictating, to Jesus. And what did he say of himself? He is, and he was, and he will always be. So will the relevancy of this be to us. So, just a sense as we move into these seven letters of what we're doing, each one holds a basic pattern. There's a basic pattern that follows these letters. First of all, when we get into these, and as we read here in Ephesians, there's an analysis. There's a, a, a sort of an analysis of the condition of the church. What kind of shape is this church in? Good, bad, middle? What is it like? And so each of the letters are going to carry with it an analysis. And then secondly, we find exhortations. It's a sort of calls to action. Keep doing these good, great things. Stop doing this very not great thing. It'll be calls to action for the churches. And then thirdly, there's a promise. Now, some of that promise is tied to a warning. Like if you keep doing this, if you keep abandoning, and if you keep following away, then, then you're going to, to lose your lampstand. You're going to lose your place in the community that I have you in. Or the promise is also associated to the completed work of Christ. Hold on, I win. We'll have great joy at the end. And so each of these letters really kind of brings us back to the overall purpose of Revelation. If you recall, the overall purpose of Revelation is to encourage the church to keep going on, to warn them from bailing on following Jesus and making much of him, and to, to give that encouragement and warning in light of the fact that Jesus is over all things and wins. So that, these letters kind of help remind us again and again of the overarching purpose of Revelation. So, that's sort of some, some patterns and some things that we need to be on the lookout for as we move through them. As we look at the one to Ephesus, this first letter, we have the good and the but dot dot dot. So let's take a second to consider the good. The, the things that Jesus, King Jesus is commending. He commends the good things of work, toil, endurance, and orthodoxy. That is believing rightly about who God is and what he has done. 
Jesus commends their actions to live according to sound doctrine, the stuff that they believe. And the Ephesians here, we find, were theological, and it showed up first in what they did. There was a work and a toil in remaining fixed on sound theology, on believing rightly about God and our life following after Him. They were theological, and it showed up in in how they did it. So they did this toil and this work, remaining fixed on sound theology. They did it with patient endurance, trusting a sovereign God. These are good things. We want our church to be marked in this way. We want to believe rightly about God, about who the Trinity is, about the the person and work of Jesus Christ, about the dynamic of salvation that God has accomplished, the fullness of His grace. We want to believe rightly about these things. And we also see, thirdly, It's not just what they did and how they did it, but they also fought against heresy or teaching that is saying this is true but really is not true. It's, in fact, very false. We don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans believed. We don't. Don't know exactly what it is. I do know two things. Jesus, King Jesus hated it. Okay. And so did the believers in Ephesus. Okay. So anything that's going to go off of those things that we need to hold tightly to, who God is, what he has done in the personal work of Jesus Christ, what salvation means and how it's applied to our lives, anything that wants to knock us off of believing rightly onto that, King Jesus hates that. All right? And so here we have uh, enough for us to say, okay, we'll follow along. These are all commended things. These are good things. These are to be things that mark the church that follows after Jesus. But, but, there's this one thing. And that's just, it just, the, it just drops. It's like a hammer that drops. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. You believe rightly. You defend truth. You defend doctrine. You don't want bad teaching to involve, like in, get invest, infected into the life of your church. Those are good things. But you've abandoned the love that you had at first. The word for abandon is, is heavy. It means to leave behind, to set aside, to dismiss, to neglect. And it was actually, in John's day, a word that was used in terms of a legal, technical term for divorce. King Jesus is saying to this church that's holding tightly to right doctrine, your heart has been divorced from me. That's sobering. That's sobering. This is no light matter at all. I mean, think about this, what we've already sort of taken in in just the opening chapter. That King Jesus is kind of a big deal. He's got the entire cosmos in his hand, if you will. He's over everything. He has all authority, all power. He's the king. And to say, to hear, that is, to hear from that king... I have this against you? 
I don't think that's a very comfortable place to be. I wouldn't want to hear from the reigning, ruling, and one day returning king, for this I have against you. So he says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first, or maybe your translation says your first love. What is this referring to? What kind of love is this? Well, it's important to kind of maybe first note, well, first of all, the love here is the agape. This is the most intimate kind of love, the deepest heart love that you would have for any one person or thing. It's the word first that's important for us. The word for first can refer to either sequence or prominence. It could either be the first of things or the most important of things. It can mean the first love or the love that comes first in the life of a new believer, that new zeal, that new hope, that new passion, that, that, that thing that you can't quite put into words, but your heart is bursting with great joy and wonder because God has rescued you in Christ and has brought you from death to life, from lost to found, from orphan to son or daughter. That love that comes just bursting out of your life, it can refer to that. It can also refer to the most prominent, the preeminent, the most important, the most significant love. And my answer is, which one does it refer to? My answer is yes. It refers to yes, both of them. It is that first and it's that prominent love. It's that that overflowing love toward God because of all of the love received from God in the person and work of Christ. It is the most main thing. Because it's all squarely centered on Jesus. It is the passionate primacy of the gospel in your life, in the life of a church. All that God has done to rescue us is all wrapped up in Christ. So all of our thoughts, all of our affection, all of our desires to live for Him, all of it in terms of both that initial joy and hope and love and everything that we feel, but also the primacy of that in our lives, all of that is wrapped up in Christ. This primary initial love sets the tone for the life of a believer and a tone, the tone for the life of a church. Or as 1 John 4.19 says it, we love because He first loved us. So, let's illustrate it in a way. Think of this church holding tightly and rightly to these things with no heart. Kind of like a man who does all the right things in a marriage yet doesn't love his wife. It works, fixes stuff, does all the things that you would want to check off. With the affection, the sweetness, the care, the love. Doesn't go beyond those actions, if you will. No real zeal, passion, joy, affection found in that marriage. A man does all the right things, yet doesn't go about loving his wife. Last night we had our marriage dessert. It was a great time gathered together with other couples. We heard from a panel, three different marriages, or different stages of marriage, different years and length and time together, 
It was wonderfully encouraging. And, and in those kinds of moments, you, you, it, it causes you to, to reflect upon your own marriage and apply things to your marriage in the right now. And it caused me to think through some things. When I was younger, I would, and I would think, I don't want to grow up and take my wife out to lunch or dinner and, and sit there and, and spend the entire time with her and never say a word. You've been somewhere before and you look across the restaurant at an older couple, nothing said to each other. Now, they could go back and, and say, hey, we went out to eat. We had a great time. On paper, it looks like you did the right thing. And yet, no affection, no joy, nothing shared at that table except a meal and a few glances. I didn't want that to mark my marriage and, and as I grew older. I didn't want that, to, that zeal and that joy and that affection that I have for my wife to fade. I want that to actually grow and thrive and be something real and present in my life, even in the last legs of my life. The same could be for churches. We just go through the motion of being church. Hey, we got all the things right but just go through the motions, lacking heart, lacking zeal, lacking passion for this God that has rescued our souls from death? May it not be so. And this Ephesian church was threatened with a massive overhaul. King Jesus said he would remove their lampstands. I'll set up a different church in a different part of town if you're all going to keep being like this. Yikes. <laughs> but he's the king and he can do that. His warning is serious. It's telling us that loving Jesus as primary is primary. So as I think through this and I wrestle with this in, in light of a, both an application of as an individual believer but also as a church, I think of these things and, and put together in my head, in my heart, like my hopes is, is that this would kick for us some warning signs to, to consider in the life of a church, but specifically our church, Trinity, warning signs that we can look at and say, are these alerts going off for us that we have abandoned the love that we had at first, the, the primary passionate uh, love that we would have for Christ because of His Redeeming love for us. There are six that came to mind. Be on the screen. The first warning sign that we might be drifting into abandoning this primary passionate love for Christ is, in, is that we would operate with an assumed gospel. What do I mean by that? An assumed gospel, that we just assume the gospel rather than delighting in it and declaring it and, 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 and being the thing that we are united around and, and passionate about. That this is what God has done to rescue sinners. That Christ lived a life that you and I could never live. And he took that perfect life and he died a death that you and I deserved. And then he demonstrated his victory over our sin by demonstrating his victory over death and his resurrection. And then he says the Holy Spirit to take all that he has done and make effectual in our dead lives, our dead hearts, 
removing our hearts of stone and giving us hearts that beat for God and they're alive and respond with faith and repentance and live in light of that with joy and hope in the face of a hard world. God did all that. And we're just going to assume it? We start assuming that it's the slippery slope to abandon it. Smart people over the years have put it this way. If a church's first generation preached the gospel, but the second one assumed it, the third one would abandon it. The third one would abandon it. I believe that. I believe that. An assumption of something that is for our delight and something that we should with great joy declare and assuming of that is just going to put us on the pathway to abandoning it. Secondly, second warning sign that, that we may be abandoning our love is a lack of warmth in corporate worship. A lack of warmth in it. What do I mean by that? Well, something warm to, eager for, joyfully anticipating that we get to sing of the praises of our God who has rescued us from sin and death and in separation from him and we get the joy of singing in days of sorrow that we get the joy of singing when when we're just threadbare because life has been incredibly hard but i you get to gather together with other people who may also be threadbare and we get to set our thoughts and affections on the king and we get to sing where there is a lack of warmth, there's sure to be a drudgery and an emptiness to follow. The going through the motions without any heart. And when there is an apathetic coldness in the midst of the praise and the prayers and the preaching, then this would be a strong signal that that first love has indeed been abandoned. The things that we need to hear and wrestle with as a church family. Thirdly, not only assumed gospel, lack of warmth in worship, but shallow community. See how this works? It trickles down. Abandon that primary love for God and the personal work of Christ, and you're not going to love each other well. You're not being sourced with the kind of love that's going to one another through all the things of life. It will just be shallow. So if our community is shallow, we're not caring and investing in each other to say, Jesus is enough, let's hold on to him and let's grow at holding on to him in very real ways in all of our life and all the things that we're facing. If we're just going to keep it to the surface, then that's an indicator that we are abandoning our first love. Fourthly, no new disciples are conversions. No new disciples are conversions. And abandoning primary love for Christ is to abandon the lost. But think of it in this way. If, if we're assuming the gospel, if we have cold worship, if we have shallow community, who in their right mind from the world who's hurting and broken and lost and confused would want to be a part of that? No, no, no one, no one wanted to be in that place. And so no new disciples, no conversions may be an indicator 
that we are abandoning our first love. Fifthly, apathy towards spiritual growth. Apathy and unwillingness to press forward. An unwillingness to grow. Apathy. When doctrine trumps love, growth will be graded in terms of knowledge and argumentation. When the heart is far, then the heart is off limits. Heart issues then are off limits. Only our positions matter, not our growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Apathy towards spiritual growth. Another indicator that we are abandoning our first love. And then six, lastly, misplaced primary zeal. The thrust of Jesus' words to the Ephesians and to us is not that having zeal for work, toil, endurance, and orthodoxy is wrong. He commended those things. It's that the primary zeal of our lives is first and foremost to be centered around our King, Jesus, and that it would bring fuel to all the other things that we would be doing for Him. So if we make politics, our culture, our issues within our culture, our politics, the main zeal of our church, why? Why? When we have King Jesus and all that He is for us and does in us and through us, the fact that God is advancing in this hard world through the gospel being proclaimed and delighted in in the church that, that nothing can thwart that. Why would we want to have all our zeal primarily fixated on something not Him? Not to say those things aren't important, but it is to say the primary passion and zeal of the life of our church is to be fixed with Jesus as the blazing center of our lives. Realize the main thing, Ephesians Realize the main thing, Trinity. Realize this together again and again and again. So what do we do when we realize that maybe there's drift in some of these, these ways? Maybe that there's a little red light flickering in some of these issues in the, as you think about the life of our own church. What do we do if it's that, that way in our own lives? Well, guess what? King Jesus gives us the map. He gives us direction for what to do. Returning to the main thing. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Call to action. Remember, repent, renew. What do we, how do we go about returning to the main thing as individual believers How do we go about returning to the main thing as a church? Remember, repent, renew. Remember. So here we have Ephesians being referred to, uh, the church in Ephesus. And there was a, in the New Testament, there's a letter to the Ephesians that was written approximately 40 years earlier. And in that letter, Paul, the apostle, wrote to the Ephesians, it kind of serves as a helpful guide to what remembering the primary love of Christ means for us. If you were to look in Ephesians in the New Testament, the New Testament letter, you'd find a a little letter with six chapters. And the first three refer to, uh, you see, the Apostle Paul demonstrating and declaring and delighting in the glories of all that God has done for us in our redemption. Those first three chapters are incredible. And then the second three, 
4, 5, and 6, they start to help us see how this glorious gospel starts to impact the way that we live, the way that we look at life and live it out. And so there's, there are a lot of commands and call to actions in, verses, or in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Great structure, delighting and declaring in the glories of God in our salvation and seeing how that salvation matters in the way that we live. Incredible. Great layout. In those first three chapters, it's just, it's just Paul bursting out and delighting in who God is and what he has done. But there's one command in those first three chapters as Paul just gives us this panoramic view of the awesomeness of God. One command in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And you know what that command is? Remember. Remember. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Returning to the main thing is an act of remembering who you are, who you were, who you are, who you will always be because of the sovereign, overwhelming grace of God. Remember that you were once far from God, but he drew near you, down, stooping all the way down to where you were and picked you up out of the pit of your sin and death and separation, and he rescued you, and he calls you treasured son, precious daughter. Remember. You didn't clean your life up, and then God accepted you. He got into your filth and rescued you out of it. Remember. Remember that. Returning to the main thing is an act of remembering. An act of remembering where we rehearse and rejoice. We rehearse again the glories of who God is and what He has done. And we rejoice around that. Do you know that Paul couldn't finish the, those three chapters without busting into doxology? If you go and look at the end of chapter 3, he's just writing a, a, a prayer, praise and worship song at the end. How amazing God is. Rehearse these things and rejoice. The act and work of remembering as a church family is when we gather here together in the midst of our lives and the busyness and the chaos and the hardness and the harshness that we are committed to get together and rehearse and rejoice because we desperately need to return to the main thing. Secondly, we need to repent. We need to repent that we need to turn our entire trajectory and action and direction. That we repent. And repenting consists of three things. Turning from, turning to, and living new. To repent has all three of those. You can't repent without all three together. Turning from, turning to, and living new. Turning from is a recognizing sin for what it is. It is rejection of God. Recognizing it's not just an act, but a pattern of living. And recognizing that it leads to separation from God. That we would repent, turn away from that. I'm going down a road that ends in a dead end. Turn around. Maybe some of us that are living our lives and, and somebody just needs to grab us at the shoulders and say, turn around, you're going the wrong way. 
And churches can do the same. They can be busy with the wrong things. And we need to turn around. But we don't just turn around to nothingness. We turn from that by turning to God. By turning, a turning from is also simultaneously a turning to. A turning to God who has an overwhelming storehouse of forgiveness and grace for people and churches who keep going down dead ends. Turning to the God who's the only one who has what we desperately need and is so readily, willingly able to give. And then thirdly, it leads to a living new. He says, do the works that you did at first. Speaks to a renewal of living. To the joy and that zeal and that hope that you had when you first came to Christ. That wonder that overtook your thoughts and your affections. That strength that you were so eager to tell the people in your life about Jesus. You know, People say, researchers say, that the most opportune time for you to be willing and able to share the gospel with others is when you first come to it because you're so overwhelmed by what God has done for you that you, you can't help but let other people come to know about it and, and be in their lives and take stands to be in their life pointing them to the one who's rescued you. So maybe for many of us, we need renewed in that. We need to be renewed in the joy of our salvation and then out of that joy be renewed in living in the ways in which we did when we first came to know him. Eager to see other people come to know him too. So we live new. And that's really the third part leading to renew. So, so we remember and, and we repent and we have lives that are renewed again and again. That continual remembering and repenting is to mark the life of the believer. Leading to ongoing renewal for the, for the life of the believer and the life of the church. Ongoing renewal spurred on by a passionate primary place of King Jesus in our hearts, our affection, our worship, our lives. This is repentance. This is returning to the main thing. It's not a one-time act either. I love what Sinclair Ferguson said of repentance. Repentance is a characteristic of the whole life, not the action of a single moment. Not the action of a single moment. That our lives would be remembering Repenting, renewing lives around the awesomeness of what we have in King Jesus. That that would mark us. That that would mark us. That we take these warnings seriously. That we wouldn't be cold-hearted. But warm-blooded in the gospel and in the joy of knowing our King. My hope for Trinity is that we would ultimately be a people who treasure Christ through all of life and go about helping others come to do the same. And we would do that together. But without keeping the love of the King, Jesus, primary, we set ourselves up for a listless ministry. 
I don't think anybody in here wants that. Does anybody in here want a listless church? Listless, lifeless. No. No. So remember, repent, renew. Let's do that together. And let's see God do incredible work in our lives, in our midst, and through our lives, in our communities. That people would come to treasure the same king that we are treasuring today. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would indeed do that work in us. We would take these letters seriously and, and know that you care deeply for God, you care deeply for Trinity Baptist Church in Nashua, New Hampshire. You care deeply for us right now. On October 31st, 2021, you care deeply for us in all the Sundays and weeks and months and years ahead for us as a church family. May we, God, live with a, a, a zeal and a hope and a joy and a passion and a love for you that our heart as a church would not be cold, but would be warm and worship and alive for you in your glory. Would you do that work in us, we pray? We plead and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand as we celebrate everything that Christ has done for each one of us?
sense I get is that this is a pivotal and exciting time for the life of our church. And we had a big change a couple of years ago, then a little COVID thing, and, and now here we are. And my hope is as we go forward, we, we're going to go forward holding on to what it is that we have in Jesus and wanting to make so much of it to each other and to those in our lives. So really impressing and encouraging. Be with us next week, Sunday, November 7th, for prayer night. As we pray for our church, as we pray for our future, as we pray for going forward, let's gather together and pray and plead passionately, joyfully for God to do work in and through us for the long run, for the long run here in Nashua, so that others will come to know our great King and rejoice with us as we sing and as we pray and as we hear the word. So please, I hope to see you Sunday, the 7th, 5 p.m., here in this room to pray together as we go forward as a church. All right, as we go forward this morning, let's do so with the words that end the Bible and the words that are for the start of our week. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.